The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Good morning. This is Carol Bossert. Welcome to Museum Life. And today, you just get me. Uh, I thought that this would be a great opportunity to uh, sit back and review some of the trends and ideas that have come up in now over 30 shows and 30 different 35 guests uh, on the show since I started Museum Life uh, last September. I want to thank everyone who listens, uh, listens to the live show, listens uh, uh, to the the, uh, tape shows, downloads, uh, sends me emails. It has been a wonderful opportunity uh, for me uh, and uh, and I hope for you. I, you know, when I started this show in September, I I had no idea where it would go or if it would go, Uh, but after our 12-week pilot, uh, we had pretty good numbers and and, uh, and it shows, I think, that there is not only a national need, but an international need to do this type of live conversation. So thank you very much. Again, when I started the show, I didn't have any huge agenda. I was interested in a variety of things having to do with museums, always interested in the issue of museum value uh, and museum service. But pretty much over these last weeks, I've followed my nose or followed my interests, things that uh, interested me, things that I was reading about or uh, blogs I was was reading or or, uh, uh, Twitter feeds that I was following. And so it's been very interesting to go back, listen to a number of the uh, uh, to the interviews, uh, review my notes, and see what kind of trends are really uh, uh, coming bubbling up, as I would say. But of course, in any such endeavor, when you start looking at uh, you're trying to organize your thoughts, uh, I don't know about you, but at 
there is a point in the process where things get a little squirrely and my mind starts race, racing. It's that little hamster on the wheel and I can't, uh, I, I can't think and I can't do. And so one of the tricks that I've learned, uh, actually learned in graduate school uh, all those years ago, is to go back to a trusted document, a trusted author, and read their words. And whether it has anything to do with with where I think I need to go, it at least calms my mind and refocuses. It probably will not come as any surprise to most of you that the article that I reached for was an article by Stephen Weil that was published in 1994 called Cream Puffs and Hardballs. Are you really worth what you cost or just merely worthwhile? In that article that, again, first appeared in 1994, Stephen asks what at the time seemed an audacious question. Are you really worth what you cost, both in terms for cost to individuals, cost to society, uh, cost to your community? He also asks, to whom uh, are you uh, uh, valuable? And more importantly, how do you know? And he talked about a variety of measurements. The thing that really struck me in what is a very prescient article, because in fact we do continue to ask that question, is Stephen said it is important not only to identify our value, but to ask what is our incomparable value. In other words, what is, what is the one thing that, that our organization or a museum can do that no other type of organization can do? So it was really in this light that I started to look at some of the trends that have come up. And one of the uh, in, a, in, in the uh, interviews and one of the biggest trends in the interviews and I think frankly as I review the uh, museum dialogues that are taking place right now is one that I call owning our identity and I want to spend quite a bit of time on this particular trend although we are I think in looking at this owning our identity, we're also looking at trends that are allowing us to create a a better or maybe at least a different vocabulary that moves our discourse from where it's been to a new, new way of looking at things, a new way, a different way of developing approaches to our, our craft, to our work, uh, doing things differently, thinking about ourselves as museum professionals differently, acting differently, and asking a little different question. Because in the end, it's the question that's going to move us forward. Let me tell you a uh, uh, little bit more about my thinking. So over the last 25 years, we have spent, and we might even say we've squandered, uh, a lot of time describing ourselves as museums by by describing either what we aren't or describing us uh, describing ourselves in different terms uh, or terms of of uh, 
a putting on the mantle of another kind of organization. We say, well, we're sort of like schools because we teach and we educate and you learn there. Or we're sort of like attractions because uh, we're, we're tourist destination, we put heads in beds, we are economic engines for our communities. And then, of course, we're sort of like libraries because we keep and preserve stuff, including books and manuscripts and all sorts of three-dimensional objects. But the truth is, and several of my guests have brought us to, to this point, we are not like anything else. We are museums. Now, unfortunately, I think that there have been times in our past and in, even in our recent past uh, that that word museum has taken on a negative connotation. Uh, I can't count the number of times that I have sat in uh, meetings with uh, very wonderful groups of people who are wanting to build something new or expand something. And the conversation usually goes like this. Well, we want to teach people about X, whatever the topic is, and we have wonderful displays about X that will engage people, and we want to have fun, and we want people to enjoy themselves, and of course we want this to be economically viable, and we don't want it to be like a museum. Museums really get a bad rap. Uh, and that was well pointed out in a very recent uh, online publication by Robert Stein of the Dallas Museum of Art in, uh, called Museum So What, in which he uh, begins his article with a quote uh, last year from Peter Singer, who wrote in an op-ed piece for the New York Times that essentially provocatively asked, well, would you rather give your money to feed hungry people or would you rather build a new wing of the museum? Well... Of course, these were fighting words, and uh, they, the, uh, the conversation flew with the muse- museum circles up one side and down the other, and uh, all sorts of discussions were had. I will say parenthetically that I don't believe another major op-ed piece came out uh, to talk about the positive side of museums, and that still is one of the problems that we have. Uh, Mr. Stein went on then to talk about what his institution, the Dallas Museum of Art is doing doing to uh, uh, look at uh, to actually to look at uh, their visitors and uh, perform measurements. And in fact, this was a, a discussion that Max Anderson talked about uh, on this program in April, and we may come back to that. And in this discussion, uh, Mr. Stein talked about a young boy, Ben, who was going blind and uh, wanted to see one of Van Gogh's paintings that happened to be at the Dallas Museum of Art, and what a wonderful, evocative uh, experience that was. Um, And Mr. Stein actually calls for more research, more studies about our impact and understanding that our measurements can't only be dashboard statistics, that that we need to be looking at how to measure the ephemeral, the emotion, memory, and meaning. And as I was reading, uh, again, Stephen uh, Weil's article and reading Mr. Stein's work again, uh, and also going back and and listening to the uh, Peter Singer 
uh, uh, YouTube and, and op-ed, I was reminded how much we get stuck both as museums and as a society in po- what I call polarizing and paralyzing uh uh, arguments, and this one is we're 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 uh, polarizing hunger versus uh, way of life, standard of life, uh, better standard of living, uh, emotional health, and it and and as I was reading these articles, it just reminded me again and again of one of my favorite folk songs growing up. Uh, Judy Collins sang it, uh, many, many others. It was actually uh, a song that is connected to the 1911-1912 suffragette movement and also union strikes in the garment industry. And of course it goes, sing along with me. Our lives cannot be sweated from birth until life closes. Yes, our, our songs as well as bodies, our hearts starve as well as bodies, give us bread and give us roses. Uh, we are, again, museums are not like a food bank. We're not like a hospital. We're museums and we help provide the roses. And this is really one of the key questions. We may not have an answer for it yet, but I think that we are well on our way. And when I come back after this quick break so that I can have a little sip of water, I'm going to give you some examples of how this owning our identity and and identifying our vocabulary is really playing out. Uh, So please stay tuned. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life, and we'll be back in a moment. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. 
Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert. And today I'm talking about uh, trends and themes that have emerged over the last uh, 30 or so shows. And um, before we broke, I was talking about this issue, or the way I characterize it, is owning our identity. And one uh, one example of that in owning our identity is uh, the interview that I did with David Carr, uh, talking about museums and and David uh, said a couple of things that I think we really we we need to remember and of course uh, please go back and listen to that show. Uh, he talks about museums as as a place where we can go to think. And that it is a type of thinking that we do nowhere else. Again, it goes back to this incomparableness that Stephen Weil has uh, challenged us with. Uh, David went on to say, and I love this quote, he said uh, that he refers to museum goers not as visitors but as users. Now, this is a, a word that, of course, he, it comes out of the library world, and David uh, is a, a librarian. But this is how he described it to me when I asked him, you know, why you use users. He said, I want museums to think of the people who come to them as active, mindful people whose brains are engaged and making connections. And this, I think, is a key point that was also reiterated by Susie Wilkening when we talked about the curious learner and how Fostering curiosity is one of the most important 21st century skills that we can be teaching uh, adults as well as, as children. And one key way to teach curiosity is through objects. And as Susie described, object gazing or object uh, uh, studying, use whatever verb you want, is not passive. It is a completely active, highly engaged uh, experience. And this, I think, is something that we have missed. We talk about ourselves as places to collect, preserve, uh, interpret objects. But when push comes to shove, we, we don't own the fact that objects are, and, and the things and the work that we're doing in the museum is incredibly active and uh, uh engaging. Now, this concept of active engagement isn't necessarily new. Lots of people have talked about it, but sometimes in the face of the Peter Singer arguments, we forget that one, and let's not do that. In fact, um, when I was talking with Susie, and also going back to the Robert Stein article, remember uh, Ben, uh, who is going blind. There's a wonderful illust- uh, photograph in this article of Ben and his mother gazing at uh, a Van Gogh painting. And both of them head to head looking at the same thing. And it, and it really reminded me of my own memories, both uh, going to the Chicago uh, Field Museum of, of Natural History, with my mother and both gazing at uh, some of the objects and questioning. It was the first time, I think it was, I was about nine years old, and it was the first time I, I saw my mother as an engaged learner. Instead of asking questions to me about, well, you know, where have you been and did you pick up your room uh, and eat your peas, she was asking questions 
questions about the object that she wanted answers to. It was and still is a bond that we have. Uh, and I, and that led me to the memories, the great memories that I've had of taking my son to museums. Of course, as, a, as the uh, child of a museum professional, he has seen many museums. Probably at times he said more than he would like to count. But again, there are some marvelous memories that we have had, some bonds that were formed, bonds, in fact, that kept me going during some of those lean times uh, when he was a teenager. And I'm sure many of you have had those experiences as well. And we don't talk about the bond of memory. We don't talk about uh, the fact that in museums we can have these priceless experiences and uh, that, that and it reminded me of a recent uh, interview that I had with uh, Cecilia Garibay. She was talking to us about some of the evaluation work that she's been doing with Hispanic audiences and the strong value that they place on experiences that they feel bond family. Uh, And some of these experiences, I think, can happen in museums. So one of the questions we're going to talk uh, in upcoming shows, we're going to be talking more about this issue of bonding and memory and also how how museums can uh, do a a better job of creating experiences and places where that bond can be formed. And uh, I've, I've got a couple of really exciting guests that are going to be coming up and talking about that. Go, uh, going back then to this issue of vocabulary. So we're, we're owning ourselves a little bit better and owning what we do a little bit better. And one of the major things that museums do, of course, is they create exhibitions. And I've had several uh, people on the show, uh, Polly McKenna-Cress, talking about the book that she wrote with uh, Janet Kamian, Creating Exhibits. We've had uh, Sarah Chacon and Richard Kissel talking about uh, natural history exhibits, dinosaurs and dioramas. And also Leslie Bedford's The Art of the Museum Exhibit. And I've said this several times on the show, and I'm going to say it again, that this is one of the most profound books uh, I've written in our field in a long time because it helps us understand the incomparableness of the exhibit experience. And more importantly, it gives us a new model, a new way to talk and plan and test these experiences. Leslie's thesis, of course, is looking at exhibits both through their story, their narrative. We've done that for a long, long time. But also imagination and the aesthetic experience. And all within the framework of what she calls the subjunctive or the what if. This has a huge consequences, not only for the exhibits that we develop, but how we develop them, how we think of ourselves as exhibit uh, developers, and also how we approach our broader uh, uh, work as, as uh, museum professionals, whether we are the guard, the visitor services staff, uh, or the museum director. More importantly, I think that this uh, 
Leslie's vocabulary and uses using this vocabulary gets us out of another one of these polarizing and paralyzing uh, arguments that continue to this day, and that is the issue of education versus uh, entertainment. And uh, for a long time, we decided uh, as a group that we would just call it edutainment. I think that that isn't a word, and we should just get rid of it because it's really not very helpful. Unfortunately, we continue to hear it. So uh, this is just a sort of a parenthetical. As museum professionals, particularly those of us who uh, live in the theory world of museum studies, uh, have an opportunity to read uh, a lot of the literature and materials and have great and philosophical talks like we're having today, uh, we probably have gone on between uh, beyond the edutainment article uh, uh, issue. But, you know, many of the people that sit on our boards or we interview for uh uh, front-end surveys haven't. You know, there probably is a little bit of a trickle down there. And so we need to, again, articulate this, this argument. Uh, if we look at Leslie's model of making sure that, that an exhibit has story but also room for imagination... As uh, Claude Debussy has been attributed with the saying, music is what is between the notes. We need to make sure that what we're doing when we create an exhibition is making sure that there is room for this etherealness, this sort of something more that we've all talked about uh, as being the thing that is most impactful in a museum exhibit, but we've never had a vocabulary for. And that means that we have to change this notion from creating an exhibit that has five objectives and three sub-themes to making sure that we are creating this presentation that is that it allows us to be completely whole i think that this will this gives us a very new idea of how we can uh go beyond just our uh, books and notebooks and thinking of exhibitions, but thinking them as a magical, ephemeral uh, performance. And this then leads me to another one of our of the key trends that uh, came up in several of our, our uh, uh, discussions, and that is uh, the, the trend of how we work and the trend of being a creative practice. Now, just as I, uh, most of us came to the museum world because we love uh, museums or we love people or we love learning or there is, there is a passion in, that drives us to doing what, what we're doing. Uh, we are, also as a group, pretty earnest and most of us sort of serious 
And it reminded me years ago uh, in the New York Times, or maybe it was Parade Magazine, came out with a list of the most and least stressful jobs. And of course, some of the most stressful jobs are brain surgeons and firefighters and uh, policemen. Uh, the one of the least stressful job was museum curator. And at the time, I was a museum curator. And of course, we laughed and laughed and laughed about how silly the Parade Magazine people were and didn't understand that we worked in a time where there was often too little money, too little time, and often too little respect. And these are not new conditions. These are sort of the new, not even the new normal, they're the normal normal. So the question is, how can we continue to do the work we love doing uh, without having the passion just driven out of us. We focus so much uh, in museum leadership programs about the skills we need to do our work, but sometimes we forget the most important one, and that is uh, the creative practice. So when we come back from this next break, I want to want to share with you a couple of examples of people who are really doing some interesting uh, things and I think being frankly very brave about talking about the creative process within the museum staff. So we're going to take another short break. I'm going to have another quick sip of water and uh, we will be right back. You are listening to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. 
Hi, welcome back. This is Carol Bossert. You're listening to Museum Life, and today we're talking about uh, trends and themes that have emerged over the last uh, six months on uh, on shows and interviews here on this program. And right before break, I was talking about uh, the creative process uh, and the importance of making sure that we, uh, as museum professionals, nurture that creativity in ourselves as much as we nurture learning and creativity in our uh, in our audiences. Uh, Rainy Tisdale and uh, Linda Norris uh, wrote a wonderful book, Creativity in Museum Practice. Linda was my guest. Unfortunately, Rainy was unable to be on that show. She came on to a later show because she was curating a marvelous exhibition called Boston Better, uh, talking about uh, uh, looking at the memory of the Boston Marathon and, uh, and how that community is Uh, dealing with that issue but Linda has this wonderful uh, had we had a wonderful time together talking about how how museum professionals need to nurture their own creativity it is the proverbial put your oxygen mask on first uh, before you can uh, help help others It is a veritable how-to of how you unleash uh, one's creativity and uh, and then makes you better at doing your job no matter whether you are the uh, uh, the exhibit curator or the exhibit developer the museum uh, archivist or even in Linda's favorite story and it's it still resonates with me today uh, uh, someone the uh, uh, facilities manager in a museum had to do a, a presentation every year to the staff on how to use the fire extinguisher. It was required, and of course, this could be just as dry as dirt, or he decided to do it as an interpretive dance. I really want to find this museum, and I want to go there next time they do their their annual fire extinguisher interpretive dance because I bet it's wonderful and memorable, and I will always remember how to use a fire extinguisher after that. What I also, what really amazed me as I thought about uh, Linda and Rainey's book again is how brave they were in writing a book that was talking about something as squishy and ephemeral as creativity. And this goes back to, uh, I, I think, another uh, indication of how museums as, and museum professionals are owning our, our own identity. And that is, we are creative people. Now, you would never, and I think we've, we've shied away from that. Again, we've tried to be good business people and good stewards and, 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 and good in every other way and not to say that, that we need to backslide on, on not being able to present and read and defend a spreadsheet, but I think we've gone a little overboard. And, you know, if you worked for a symphony or a theater or even a school, being called creative would be a good thing. So let's own up our own creativity. 
The other trend that I see, and I think in part it's because of the creative nature of our museum practice and some of the great things that are going on, is it's really breaking down silos. Uh, We are breaking down silos in universities right and left. Uh, Museums still seem to be organized around traditional subject matters. In fact, our museums themselves are arranged by art museum, history museum, science museum, Museum. Uh, some of that is historical, and we won't uh, we won't necessarily want to go beyond it. On the other hand, breaking down the silos is where some of the interesting magic is happening. And I uh, remember very vividly the interview that I've had that I had with Catherine Hughes, who is a uh, professional actress, uh, 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 theater. Uh, Creator has worked at uh, the Minnesota Science Center in bringing uh, theater to teaching science themes, and she is now at Connor Prairie in uh, Indiana, where they are also doing some really innovative things to teach uh, science and engineering through history and drama. A very, very interesting program uh, that I think that we can all benchmark and take note of. Another one that just I thought was um, is is amazing at, is Harvey Cipher's work, uh, it, funded by the National Science Foundation, in which they are using artistic approaches, all uh, everything from. Uh, arts, communication, drawing, painting, as well as teaching in the arts to work with groups of people who are coming together at their local communities to solve real-world problems uh, such as uh, uh, cleaning up drinking water and uh, uh, other pollution issues in, in their community. But again, they're doing it not by maybe first talking about the science, but first building their connections and their community and their collaboration through the arts to help unleash their creativity. Another aspect of the uh, of of the silo breaking down, I think, is Sarah uh, Sutton's work on greening the museum. This is sort of an overview that touches absolutely every part of what the museum needs to be doing. But of course, all of this that we've been talking about, whether it is um, owning owning our own <laughs> owning our identity, uh, developing a new vocabulary, uh, finding new ways of working, this is all taking place within the context of the real sea change of uh, how technology is changing the way society works. It's certainly changing the way we communicate with each other it's changing the way uh, ways in which we get information we know it, it is changing the way that we learn both in the formal education system whether it's K through 12 or through university and so it's not a surprise that this technological uh, shift in our society is also affecting the museum 
We know that uh, listening to Beth Merritt, and uh, who's the uh, director of the future, the Center for the Future of Museums, that these technological issues are really going to be the things that uh, that drive us, and I would say even plague us uh, in in the coming years. And as I was reflecting back on the uh, uh, the speakers that I've had uh, talking about these issues of technology, I really realized that we're we're pretty new in this area. I can't say that that I feel that we've got a full vocabulary to talk about this extremely uh, well. I do think that we've. Uh, I go back to the work that that uh, Nick Honeyset is doing. That uh, and my very very favorite quote of his is "Ignore the technology." Uh, now, of course, that's taken out of context. Uh, what he means is that too often, as museums, uh, probably as an exam, as a function of our being, maybe a little late to the party uh, when it comes to technology, we are now um, focusing on the delivery. We're focusing on what I like to call the new, bright, shiny thing. Uh, uh, whether it's the new iPhone app, whether it's the Google Glasses, whether it's the you know, whatever the new shiny thing is, we say, ooh, look at the new shiny thing. How can we use it in our museum? And that's a okay question, but it's probably not the right question. And Nick helped us understand that the right questions need to be looking on, at Focusing on what we're good at doing, again, going back to Stephen Wiles' uh, charge to us, what do we do that is uh, incomparable uh, within our community? What's that uniqueness that we provide? And, And how can we provide it? And then identify technological answers to help us uh, in that way. Now, Marcia Semmel also helped us understand a little bit more about what museum life is like uh, or is going to be like in the uh, digital age. And she said uh, something that, again, I don't think maybe got enough play on the air at the time, so I wanted to to repeat it. And that is that one of the consequences and one of the challenges and opportunities of this vast technological uh, ocean we're swimming in is that we have an opportunity as museums to do more co-creation. Our audiences, our users, our visitors uh, are coming to us with with a great deal of information and knowledge and we can use that information and knowledge to co-create experiences that neither one of us could do uh, on our own very well. And that gets to an issue that has been uh, underlying a, a lot of our discussions with museums. Uh, Elaine uh, Humangurian has been reminding us of this for a long, long time, but I, I don't really think that enough of us were paying attention. And that is the issue of control. 
who really controls uh, the content, who really controls access, and the fact that if we are going to, as Nick says, we can't solve digital problems with analog thinking, perhaps part of that analog thinking is this issue of control. In the coming weeks and months, I have some really exciting guests uh, that are going to be helping us talk about these technology questions in a little bit more detail. Uh, There are some very interesting conferences coming up. We're going to be talking, uh, and I'm going to be talking about with some of the organizers of these conferences as well. I do think, again, this is where creativity needs to come into play and creativity in ways that we haven't even begun to really think about. But it's extremely, extremely exciting. So those are four of the trends and themes that uh, we've been talking about uh, that have that are making me very, very excited about our field. When we come back, I'm going to talk about a final one uh, and also about some of the themes that we didn't get a chance to uh, really talk about today. So please come back. Uh, continue listening to the show you are listening to carol bossert and this is museum life and we will be back in a moment thank you for tuning in this week to music streaming live the leader in internet talk radio voiceamerica.com Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvin Vora weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast all the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. 
Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert uh, for Museum Life. And in our final segment uh, today, looking at uh, trends and themes, I want to talk about uh, an obvious trend and theme, uh, not only in my program, but uh, all throughout the uh, discourse about museums, and that is community. For whom are we doing this? Who is our community? Uh, Again, the We have some new and, uh, I think, better questions than we've ever had before. Uh, We have some new challenges as to who, who, what, what does community mean? But we do also have some new vocabulary. And again, one of my favorite quotes uh, that that keeps that is really stuck to me is when we my interview with Matt Lehrman when we were talking about audience and audiences are not apples. Uh, this is from the inevitable discussion that he hears as he does his audience workshops when usually the museum director, but someone will raise their hand and say, well, so how do we get that low-hanging fruit? As if audiences were apples and all we needed to do was sort of do a little nudge and that uh, lowest apple would would just uh, ready-made tumble into our museum. The question needs to be, so who can benefit from what we have to offer? What is it that that our community needs and how are we uniquely positioned to give it? Not necessarily how do we get some new audience that we've never that uh, uh, that to to convince them that what we have is what they need. And it goes back to this issue of civility. We've talked about that. Uh, And a new way of thinking about, or at least in in my mind, a new way of thinking about this civility with our audience, the the relationship we have with our audience, is what Gretchen Jennings has talked about as being an empathetic museum. How can we be empathetic to our audiences, to the individuals, as well as our broader community? Now, actually, you will remember in our interview, Gretchen admits that she has had some pushback in uh, her her idea of empathy. Some people are saying, haven't we already talked about this? Well, yes, we have. We clearly haven't solved the, the issue or the challenge. There hasn't been enough discourse. And I would say that l- using a new vocabulary word is often very helpful in identifying the question. And I would, I would say as well that what the discussion about empathy does for us is it helps us as museum professionals get out of another one of those polarizing paralyzing discussions of us versus them we have stuff or we have information and we want to give it to them and it when we start talking about uh, empathy, I think what that does is it shifts our perspective. So we are no longer the institution that is outside the community looking into the community, but we are in fact in the center of the community looking around us, engaging around us uh, to understand what is what are those things that we can really, really be doing? The other 
aspect of this, I think, is uh, one that is a meta theme uh, in the uh, in the world today, and that is the power of the community uh, to solve their own problems. Uh, in the nineteenth, twentieth century, and I think there still is the mythology uh, within this country that there are great minds, what I call, you know, the real smarties in the world who have, uh, you know, the 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 next big idea, the next new technology, the next new, uh, and and a whole lot of money to do it, the next new entrepreneur that will move our country in some kind of new direction. It is sort of a top-down approach. It is one that historically we have looked at, uh, you know, the great white guys of uh, the uh, the centuries past that in hindsight we see, you know, allowed us to build skyscrapers and create uh, uh Uh, cars and uh, whole new technologies but I really think that we are in a new uh, new paradigm and that is making changes ourselves there's a shift in model that it we are much more of that the best ideas and the innovative ideas are going to come from those from small communities, from individual communities working on their immediate individual needs. And we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, more in the coming weeks. I have some very interesting guests that can talk to us about this issue of scale and how we solve our problems ourselves. There's one other aspect of this this idea of new vocabulary, and that is the the other... uh, issue of mission and market and what we often uh, talk about as the crossroads of mission and market as if it's a you know it's a it's a sweet spot that we can often get to and sometimes we can Steve Brand reminded us of a program that uh, he developed that became incredibly lucrative that was also directly related to the mission of his institution but sometimes this discussion of mission and market, we inevitably begin to say, we've got a mission and now we've got to find a way for somebody else to pay for what I want to do. And I think, again, that isn't the question that we need to be asking. We, If we look more about uh, this, this idea of can we... How can we, what are the tangibles and intangibles that we can provide together in our community for the betterment of our community that, that provide those roses? What, those are the things that I think that uh, those are going to be the questions that are going to lead us to, uh, to better and more useful answers to answer again uh, Stephen Wilde's charge to us. Uh, what, how are we both valuable and uh, unique? Now, there have been so many topics that I haven't had a chance to talk about and that we will continue to talk about on Museum Life programs. There are issues of leadership. There are issues of governance. There are lots of issues on the changing um, uh, a social engine, uh, social ch- being a social change engine or a social change agent. Uh, that was a question that I asked Mary Kay. 
case right at the end of our program a couple of weeks ago and really didn't have enough time uh, for Mary or I to articulate a good answer. But the question remains, can museums be change agents in their community? Or are we always going to be, uh, because of our inherent nature, because of the people who gravitate to working in museums, are we always going to be uh, responsive uh, to the needs of others as, as opposed to really leading a change? And I've been thinking about that a lot. I don't have an answer yet, uh, but I am going to be bringing some people onto the show, both who work within the museum profession and outside of our profession, uh, to help us identify uh, identify some of those answers. Again, it has been uh, a true pleasure uh, to host this show week in and week out, uh, uh, being able to bring on some of my very dearest friends as well as new friends all being thought leaders in our community. I want to do a special shout out to my my friends and colleagues who will be at the Visitor Studies Association uh, meeting next week in Albuquerque. Unfortunately, I cannot join you, uh, but I will be thinking about you. And in fact, we will be hosting a couple of programs from VSA. So please thank you again for listening this week. Uh, Be sure to tune in next week and in the following weeks. Remember, if you ever miss a show, you can catch it on carolbossertservices.com, my website. You can always drop me a line at carol.bossert at verizon.net. Tell me what you'd like to be talking about on Museum Life. Uh, Have a wonderful weekend, and I'll be back next week. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.